0: Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of
1: decision-making. Hello to everyone. Thanks and thanks for tuning in on yet glorious episode of Beyond Governance. My name is Nimret Mbele. I'm glad to be in your midst as we continue to debunk very interesting and topical issues affecting not only South Africa but the continent as a whole. The gist of our conversation this morning, essentially it's about a book that was written by a very interesting fellow called Victor Khomu Eswarna. He'll be talking about his book titled Africa is Bowsing Back, which is essentially about the resilience of this continent. Victor will also be joined by Son Mulobi, who is a former consul general to Milan and who is now the chief executive officer and group chairman at Brand Hill, Africa. The conversation is going to be located in a, in a context of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. Based on what you're seeing, it looks like Victor has already joined us, which is a quite interesting uh, uh, gesture on his part, as well as as our noble friend here, Saul Mulobi. Gentlemen, without any waste of time, let me take this opportunity to, to welcome you at uh, Beyond Governance.
0: Hello to all your listeners and also to Victor. Morning, Nimrod,
1: and morning, Saul. So. How are you, Victor? Thank you for joining us.
0: Well.
1: I'm all right, I'm all right, thanks, and how are you? I've just already painted the picture that we're going to have this interesting conversation with Victor Homuyaswana, as well as, uh, you know, uh, Son Molobi, giving us a perspective of what, first and foremost, is about the book, which, first, we need to congratulate you, Victor, in your second book, I'm you to read some of it, I promise I'm going to read all of it at some point and come back to you. At the very same point, what triggered the idea of writing the book under that very topic?
2: Nimrod, the first book, if you remember, was called Africa is Open for Business. And that line became my gospel. I actually even named my company after it. and So people associate me with Africa doing well, Africa being the place to invest. And they would tease me a lot when things go wrong. You know, when you say Africa is not one country, so saying Africa is open for business is, is overreach because you are saying the continent is open for business when people are looking at certain countries like at this point, Sudan, where there is a coup and the coup was not long after another coup. So when you, when, when they see things like that, they start teasing you and of course, as a, as a thinker, as a commentator, when new evidence comes to the fore, I also have to change my mind accordingly. But nearly 10 years after Application Open for Business was written, I found myself wondering if I still believed in it. And that was because people were asking me, you remember that was Zimbabwe at the time going through its post-Mugabe complications. And like I said, Omar al-Bashir being removed. Angola going through its own removal of Eduardo dos Santos. And then you, and then you had Boko Haram in Nigeria. Uh, Everybody was asking, hey, is Africa, is Africa still open for business? Almost as a way of teasing me. And I had to look and say, well, that's a fair, legitimate question. Is it still Africa? Is it still open? So I had to then look for evidence of resilience that although there were all those problems, that we are talking about in the very Nigeria where there's Boko Haram in the northeast, Ali Aliko was building Africa's largest refinery of oil. This is Africa's richest man. And I was looking at fintech entrepreneurs growing up all over. I was looking at countries like Kenya forging ahead with their connectivity. I was looking at small countries like Rwanda during COVID deploying robots to clean hospitals when we were here in South Africa doing what, paying 400 or so million to clean a few schools in one province. So I looked at that and I said, everywhere you look, even in South Africa, there there's evidence of resilience. And so I set about to look for that kind of evidence and present it in a book. So the title Africa Bounces Back simply says, Africa always bounces back when put under whatever kind of Pressure, whether it was colonial oppression, slave trade, civil war, disease, but it also represents the fact that there are these anecdotes that we must not overlook when we assess the negative that is taking place on the court.
1: This is Beyond Governance 101.9. FM. my name is Nima
0: Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus 94 Research, the science
1: of decision-making. Welcome back. It's an interesting conversation that we are having with Victor Homiaswana, uh, who's giving us perspective in terms of the book that he has written, which apparently is doing very well. And I'm definitely going to read it. Like I said, <laughs> I'm going to read it and come back to you at some point because you're making very interesting anecdotes. Uh, we're also joined by Son Mulobi, who is a former Consul General to Milan, who's now the Executive Officer and Group Chairman at Brain Hill Africa. Thank you very much for giving us the perspective, uh, the 10 terms of your book, the kind of rationale behind it. The fact that almost inspiring the reader to look for positive energy, positive thought processes, positive arena through which Africa has to be looked from that particular landscape. But how do you deal with the kind of pessimistic view that Africa has already been painted
2: There's nothing you can do for anybody, Nimrod, who doesn't want to believe. In other words, who's believing that they are doomed. But you can do something for somebody who's wondering if the temporary doom that they are going through is something they can bounce, rebound from. I'm not a denialist, So when there is something wrong happening in South Africa, I will call it out. But I look at Africa, with 55 states, and I say, wait a minute. Even in South Africa, as we are complaining now about what we are complaining about, there are brilliant things that are happening. There are young entrepreneurs who are showing so much resilience. So it's almost a matter of perspective. So I'll give you an example. If you are sitting now in a studio at High FM and you are looking at your colleagues around you and you suddenly get on the table, stand on the table and look at the same people the same place, they will look different. So what I'm doing always is to find a perspective that will show me the positive. And why do I look for it? Because I know it is there. Often things change, not because they have changed, but because we have changed our perspective towards them. But also, you and I and Saul are Africans. We don't have anywhere to go. So if we believe that when there are problems on this continent, we are doomed forever, then, well, that's the verdict. We are going to be condemning ourselves. But Saul and I come from the generation that when there was so much despondency in Africa, in South Africa during the days of apartheid, and I remember him, he used to be, among other things, as an activist, he was a poet. He would recite many poems that will inspire us. And we believed, we knew we could have been killed and many of us were being killed. Now, if you just think about it, we could have looked at it and say, hey, if some of us are getting killed, this is not worth it. I would rather live in repressed conditions than fight for something better. So it's that attitude that I have. I'm never going to deny problems that are there in Africa, and there are many. But I can tell you for one problem that you have, there are millions of good things that are happening. And I see that not in politicians, but in ordinary people who are out there finding solutions to -to day-to-day problems. And they are using innovation. They are using technology. They are using crowdfunding. I mean, think about this. How Ethiopians were able to build a $4 billion dam without the help from the World Bank and all these multilateral funding agencies that we believe we are doomed without. They went into villages. And like in South Africa, here we have Stockfell. They took a Stockfell approach and finance a 4 billion dollar debt 4 billion dollars can you imagine what it would take to raise that kind of money it's nothing it's just believing in yourself and knowing the crowdfunding that you have
1: i could not agree with you more talking of that let me just bring in brussel here uh, because i mean one of the things that i want brussel to reflect on is the african continental free trade agreement uh which represents a major step towards economic integration in the continent Russell, you and I have spoken about the uh, African-continental trade uh, before. Could you just, for the purpose of the listener, just a quick reflection in terms of where we are as a country? Because I also want to go back to the point that was made by Victor and say the kinds of lessons that he is bringing. To what extent can we leverage on the African-continental free trade agreement?
0: Victor has just evoked the, or provoked the, the poet within me. And I then remembered Shakespeare saying, even roses do have thorns. Yes, uh, each and every positive situation, you will always have challenges embedded in, in that. And the Marxists call that contradictions, that they are a source of development. But you look at the turn of the last century, Trixlica I spoke about the regeneration of Africa. You fast forward to nineteen sixty-three, Kwame Nkrumah spoke about integration of Africa. And then between Pixley and Kwame there was a lull, but in nineteen ninety one then the African Union got together and they adopted the Abuja Treaty. And I would say from nineteen ninety one up until today, even though they had given themselves 34 years. Yes, there have been challenges uh, of, of this integration effort, but I would say that um, uh, the continent has done very, very well. In fact, there have been delays, but uh, the process hasn't been derailed, even in the face of COVID. We have eight regional economic uh, communities that are very active. Yes, there is progress uh, taking place within those regional economic uh, communities. But the mainstay for us is that from January this year, we started operationalizing the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. So, Samer's dream and Kwame Krumah's dream are now being realized by us. Yes, we still have a long way to go, but I think we are doing very much, uh, much better compared to what the European Union uh, took to become what it is today. So we are on the right track. Thank
1: you very much for that uh, insight, Brasol. On a very topical issue, this is Beyond Governance at 101.9. Hi, and my name is Nibir Akindelik.
0: Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making.
1: Once again, welcome. This is Beyond Governance, at 101.9. Hi, my name is Nimret Mbend. I'm joined by very interesting colleagues, uh, Victor Khumu Yaswana, as well as um, uh, Solomon Lobi. The colleagues are, first and foremost, Victor has written a very interesting book, which I urge you, to find and read and comment on it. Um, And Saul is really giving us a perspective in terms of how the, the book that has been written by Victor on how Africa is bouncing back. And obviously you bounce back based on the kind of quagmire that you've experienced. And I do believe that Africa is definitely bouncing back. And that title, in my view, and I'm sure that in the views of the listeners, is quite useful and important. But before we took that small break, SOLO has just given us a perspective of where Africa continental free trade is um, at the moment. And, and you're making reference to some of the strides which the continent has been able to achieve within a relatively short space of time when you juxtapose it with how the European Union, uh, the duration in which the European Union took to be where they are. But I just want to go back and bring in Victor. We know the biggest asset of Africa is its youth. We've got about 60% of youth in the continent. To what extent do you think um, the bounce and back phenomenon, so to speak, have to be leveraged on the, the biggest asset which we have, which is youth? And what would it take to get the youth to be at the forefront who knows? And so will
2: tell you? Ignorance is the worst enemy. Poverty, ignorance, and disease. We we used to have these things drummed into us in the 80s, when we were when I was a teenager and, and learning about the struggle. Young people of Africa are the strongest asset if they are educated properly. And by educated properly, I mean given the education that will make them able to access economic opportunities whether as employees because i don't like to create the impression that everybody will start a business as employees or as entrepreneurs business people and even as government officials and they need to be given the right kind of skills that education must be appropriate suited to the times that we live in although it must have the foundations the moral foundation and everything but they are a different animal if they are not given that opportunity, because then they become a source of crime. They become susceptible to terror attacks. What you look at in Mozambique, in the north of Mozambique, you might think of it as Boko Haram, I mean, Al-Shabaab or whatever terror attacks. But if you dig deeper, you will find that there was a discontent regarding economic opportunities that were not followed through. In the petroleum, what is it, the natural LPG, whatever, natural gas business that was happening, some of the petroleum business that is taking place there, young people who have promised. Now, when you don't have an opportunity and there's so much activity happening around you, you become susceptible or vulnerable to recruitment advances. From people who could range from crime to terror terrorism, or just despondency that makes you an abusive person and all that. So it is about making sure that we understand them, we give them the right education, and by education is education for relevance in the labor market, but also for the kind of African that we need, the one that is resilient, one that is positive and forward-looking.
1: I couldn't agree with you, more. Education... But you qualify by saying you need a, a appropriate and relevant education. Coming back to the point that Saul raised. Saul, I mean, this is obviously a big challenge. Education, to what extent education uh, pillar, if you like, is an integral part of the African trade uh, agreement. Because truth of the matter is that we cannot prosper outside education. Whether we're talking education, you know, there has to be for paper obviously, education for employees, as Victor's uh, correctly pointed out, or education to catapult individuals and entrepreneurs. But where does it feature in the African International uh, Free Trade Agreement?
0: Our National Planning Commission uh, did the review of the education sector, and they published a report in November last year. They indicated that we are having a serious crisis as South Africa because there is a 40% dropout dropout rate between Grade 1 and and Grade 12. This is a a national security risk for for any country. But now at the same time, um, we need to develop appropriate skills that the economy require, And I always and i always say that um we need to embark on a mass education campaign to reposition your colleges because during my generation Uh, technical colleges were were even given a derogatory name called Ambach School. They were they were colleges for those who weren't intellectually gifted. And unfortunately the universal norm is that for every university student, one university student, there has to be four at the technical college. And in South Africa is the other way around. We have four university students against one at the technical college and that's why we have this crisis of many university graduates not being able to to be absorbed by by the the labor market so we we need to 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 redress this in fact the other problem was that um post 1994 at one stage we struggled to to understand where the training could be located, whether it should be located within the basic education stream to become Department of Education and Training, or it should be located um, in your your higher education sector. And it was very late, uh, post-1994, that uh, training, which was the, the training component, which was treated as an illegitimate brother to either basic education or higher education was finally given a home within the higher education sector. So we need to do a lot. Maybe let me also go back to your, to your opening uh, remarks where you spoke about the need for political alliances post these elections. And I'll take you back to uh, our traditional African idiom that says, if you want to walk fast, walk alone. But if you want to walk far, walk with other people. For me, this also speaks to Africa's integration. All along, we were talking about South Africa and Nigeria as the biggest economies in Africa. But at the same time, if you look at our market size, uh, we can compete uh, effectively. With, with other nations because our, our market is very small. And that's why then Africa decided that they needed to integrate the continent into one common market of our, of about 1.27 billion consumers. This will make it not only attractive to other continents, but also this will benefit intra-African Trade because then we will be able to trade with each other as African countries. We will be able to access this huge market without necessarily looking to all the, the, the foreign markets that all along as South Africa and Nigeria we, we, we were targeting. So for me, this is very important because it takes us back to where we were supposed to have been all so education is, is key. And some two weeks ago, I was saying to, to Victor that I'm extremely worried about South Africa vis-a-vis its role within the African continent. Then I was saying my guesstimate is that we are 30 to 40 years behind uh, other African countries. And the unfortunate thing Victor also spoke about ignorance is that As South Africans, we believe we are much more advanced than African, other African countries. And unfortunately, um, we are far behind. And Victor, in response, said we need to encourage South Africans to travel into the continent so that they can realize that we need to work doubly harder to be at the level where African countries are right now. So. Education is key. We need to train our, our youth to develop them into the kind of uh, resource that the Africa's economy, not only South African economy, but continental economy will rely upon.
1: Thank you for that. But you're making a very stalling uh, observation, Brasol. Uh, I mean, you're saying South Africans, are, we are 30 to 40 years behind the rest of the continent. I'm not sure if Victor shared the same sentiment. Can we hear from Victor? What's your sense on that particular stunning observation from Seoul?
2: You remember there was something in 2015 that the International Telecommunications Union, an agency of the United Nations, had set for countries to migrate from analog broadcasting for television to digital. Mm-hmm. When did South Africa finally make that crossing? If at all... <laughs> Exactly. Very, very recently. We were fighting over encrypted versus unencrypted desktop set, set top boxes. Do you know which the first countries, the first three countries in our region to comply with that were? Tanzania, Rwanda and Kenya. Those countries have no business moving ahead of South Africa on anything. I, and I, it's no disrespect to them, but I know the problems they were facing. But the ability to digitize, the ability to to appreciate that it We might have come from wherever We might have had problems But we are now mindful of The future is digital As a reality And we are going to do whatever it takes Now I told you And I, I hate talking about Rwanda now Because then people start thinking I am paid by the government of Rwanda But I say If you visit the country And you I went to see a and you are, in, 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 in a way, you're you going to appreciate this. I went to a place called Mohanga, in the middle, right in the heart of Rwanda. Rwanda has got a lot of hills, so driving around the country is not easy. It's a small country, slightly larger than Houthang in terms of area, but it is very difficult to travel because it's hilly. Even where there are hard roads, it's not easy to drive at a high speed. And I went to see how they are deploying blood samples using drones. I'm talking about there, I was there five years ago already when I saw this. Now, think about the difference it would make to be able to deploy emergency medical supplies using drones. Now, what really upset me was that when I investigated, I found that Rwanda took a policy from South Africa about drones. But what they did, they took what South Africa was only talking about doing in the form of a policy and went and implemented it. Now, this time when there was COVID, they were able to use those drones to monitor compliance with lockdown requirements. They didn't have to have anybody running around monitoring. They could just use drones to survey and check who is, where they are the crowded areas. They knew they had to deploy the police to intervene. And they deployed robots, Nimrod, to clean hospitals. And I'm saying if a small country like Rwanda can deploy robots to clean hospitals, when we in South Africa are spending $430 million to clean schools, something is wrong. And it's got nothing to do with how much money you have. It's got to do with how you think.
1: Sure, that's a very interesting observation that you just made. And, and I couldn't agree with you more. There's certainly good lessons that we are, you know, deriving from being exposed to other African countries, as it were, particularly when we are gravitating towards the free trade that Saul is talking about. Maybe coming back, Victor, in your book, you have made reference to some lessons that we can all learn from the likes of uh, Ethiopian Airway and Kenyan Airway. We all know that in South Africa, When you look at those SOEs, they are completely in disarray.
2: Ethiopian Airlines is a good example, and and it tells us one thing. You can have a 100% government-owned airline that is profitable, fast-growing. And when I say profitable, I mean even in the year of COVID. Ethiopian Airlines was still doing well financially during the year of COVID. It's it's almost sounding like a miracle because the year of COVID crushed airlines that never looked like they could go under. But Ethiopian Airlines was profitable because they were able to adapt and take advantage of the crisis that was COVID to keep their airline in the air. And what's interesting the most is, as I said, it's 100% owned by the government, but most of all, it is run by Ethiopians. And you just look at where they fly You know that even two weeks ago, while we were wondering about what SAA could do, Ethiopian Airlines was clinching a deal with SAA link to connect certain South African destinations to the rest of the continent, which is what we have been preaching all along, that the real future is in Africa. Now, if you look at the numbers, the recovery numbers for tourism post-COVID and Nimrod, you'll find that the the stats, and I'm talking about things you can check with stats SA—travel that only countries that saved travel for South Africa were the African countries, Zimbabwe, you know, countries that are in the sub-Saharan area region of of Africa. And we were thinking we should be prioritizing England and all that because that's where our rich tourists are coming. But in the end, domestic tourism, regional tourism has more value than what we consider international tourism. So I am in Polokwane right now and it is shocking to know that Polokwani, which is which is the gateway to the rest of the SADC region, has an airport that's not allowed to land airplanes because of non-compliance with some lousy, lousy regulations. So I'm thinking, if we can be having an airline that's trying to recover, and yet we have destinations like Polokwani that could really be the source of that recovery, What's wrong with? I mean, do we not want to learn? Do we not care? Or do we not get it? Praso,
1: I'm sure yeah. he's in a position to respond to that question. Praso, no, do we not uh, care? Or we don't learn? What's wrong with us? That's a million dollar question which the listener. I'm sure he's also wondering what's wrong with us because we have so many things going. A simple example that was made by Victor around the you know the the, the use of drones. They took it here and they simply implemented it. What's wrong with us?
0: 2005, six. I I worked uh, in the office of the Premier in Limpopo and uh, as head of communications, and we developed a brand positioning statement that said Limpopo was the heartland of Southern Africa. By then, we were looking at its strategic geographic location. Many years later, um, in fact, this. Pay off line is gaining traction. If you look at the establishment of the musina Mercado Special Economic Zone, which will be able to service all other countries po- uh, north of Limpopo, and then, but by then we are also looking at the Transfrontier Park, uh, the Kruger National Park. That if you are in Polokwane and you want to go to a beach. In fact, Shai Shai in Mozambique is closer for you if you drive through the Girion, the border post within the Kruger National Park. From Pologwane to Shai Shai, it's, it's 660 kilometers, whereas from Pologwane to Devon, you are looking o- at over 900 kilometers so by then we were advocating for regional integration this is why even an airport like uh, polo gateway international airport which has an international license we should be able to make use of it for cargo direct uh, which is a destined SADEC as a whole and we are under utilizing
1: that resource sure. um you know these kinds of um evidence do really point to what i could define as a leadership gap or leadership deficit this is beyond governance at 101.9 high fm my name is nimrod
0: beyond governance making sense of doing business in south africa is proudly sponsored by plus 94 research the science of decision
1: making So welcome back. We're gravitating towards the end of our show. Uh, If you've just joined us, I'm in company of Victor Homiya as well as my old friend here, Saul Mulobi, who is the former Consul General to Milan, and now the Chief Executive Officer and Group Chairperson, and Bren Hill. The colleagues, first and foremost, the picture was that we've got a very interesting book that was written by Victor, which I urge you to go and read. It's about how Africa is bouncing back, a very optimistic uh, position that uh, Victor is talking about. And of course, we are locating how Africa is bouncing back in the context of the Africa trade agreement for the two are, are intertwined. You can't divorce the two completely. We are literally gravitation towards the dead end of our conversation, uh, you know, this morning. Personally, as a parting shot, Victor, from your end, by the way, congratulations on your new appointment at the University of Limpopo. Uh, I got this anecdote I got from Saul earlier this morning. But as a parting shot on your end, what is it that the lessons that we're getting from your book, which I believe it is well-written, well-researched, what are the key lessons that we need to draw to ensure that the Africa trade agreement becomes a success.
2: The lesson, Nimrod, is that every crisis is an opportunity to bounce back. And by this, I'm talking about even the tragedy of untold proportion that is COVID is an opportunity. The fact that I was saying Ethiopian Airlines during COVID transformed some of their passenger airlines into cargo aircraft and started transporting PPE and did all kinds of things shows you that you can, even in a crisis, find an opportunity. I wish by now African countries would have built the capacity to make PPE. You know, well, last year when when COVID broke out, there was a university on the coast, on the east coast. I think it was Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University that said we can manufacture sanitizer. To me, as a student who did science at university, I know that should be a simple laboratory experiment that even first years can do. But I don't remember that follow up to the extent that we could have been using something that's locally manufactured by a university, where instead of locking students away at home and saying it's COVID, they could have been producing sanitizer for the whole country, if not for the whole region. So there are always opportunities in crisis, and there are examples of government being involved in making policies that can favor their people. I'm talking about Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire doing wonderful work about the cocoa farmers and making sure that they build the chocolate industry in West Africa. And there's fintech that we must never forget. Technology is the future, but it's the future only if you apply it, not when you use it to hang around social media and, and tweet about about nothing. It's fintech, which is where finance or financial services meets technology. All those kinds of opportunities are there. The mindset is that we should, if we get our governance right, because it's important, we should be able to bounce back from just about anything. We have already bounced back from slavery, from colonial oppression. We have bounced back from all kinds of civil wars, dictatorships, disease. And we can certainly bounce back from this as Africans by doing what suits Africans.
1: I could not agree with you more. Thank you very much for that uh, insight. The biggest word that you've uh, put across is the changing of the mindset, the self-belief system that you don't need anybody else to help you, but you can do it yourself. But you can't do that unless your mindset is is in an uh, appropriate stance, also, so to speak. Let me bring in Russell in his party short based on a very interesting observation that was made by Victor.
0: Before, I, I close. Let me, those who know me, that I spent six hours in the book publishing industry. So I, I read many books and many manuscripts that we rejected. But Victor, Victor's book is one of the few that truly fit the description and put downable. So once you start reading it, you won't be able to put it down until you have finished it. And I highly recommend it. And I congratulate Victor on it. Um, My package shot speaks to the African Union's accelerated industrial development of Africa uh, uh, policy document, Um, and and for me, it it, it's the best weapon that we can use for our recovery post. Uh, what Wamkele Mene, uh, the Secretary-General of the Africa-Continental Free Trade Agreement, described as the pancession. And and the objectives uh, outlined say, integrating da- industrialization in national development policies, maximize the use of local productive capacities and inputs, add value to abundant natural resources, develop small-scale and rural industries, take maximum advantage of Africa's partnerships to enable the transfer of technology, and finally, establish and strengthen financial and capital markets. This will ensure that we indeed um, achieve all the objectives outlined in the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement's constitutive policies. Thank you so much for this invitation to this panel.
1: Thank you, Professor. Thank you very much uh, for both of your insights, commentary, and very uh, thought-provoking analysis. Um Literally, um, we are about to wrap up, as it were, but perhaps maybe as a parting shot on my side, I want to thank Victor Homoeswana uh, for the book, and I promise you I'm going to read the book, uh, which is entitled uh, Africa Bouncing Back, and the, the kind of metaphor that has been used, the knowledge that has been used, do really resonate with me and I'm sure it will resonate with a whole lot of other people for Africa Bounce Back from so many trials and tribulations. So it's something that we all look forward to do. I'll definitely go and read it so that I can invite Victor once again on some of the salient points that he has, that he would have raised or that, that I would have observed or Intrigued by. Also take this opportunity to thank Solomon Obi, who is a former Consul General to Milan, uh, and he's now the executive officer and group chairperson and Premier Africa for his insightful engagement on the African trade, free trade agreement where we are at now and the extent to which Africans need to move with speed to remedy all the social and economic ills that we're experiencing. Gentlemen, it is unfortunate we're gonna have to leave it here. It has been an absolute pleasure having you.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Nimrod, and it's good talking to you again, sir.
1: Um, I think it was a really, uh, interesting and thought-provoking conversation that we've had with the two esteemed gentlemen, Victor Khomiaswana, about his book entitled Bouncing Back, Africa's Bouncing Back, indeed Africa's Bouncing Back. Africa has no choice but to bounce back, for there's a lot of resilience. In it. And thank you very much for Saul uh, for his inputs on the Africa Trade Continental Agreement uh, dispensation, which is promising to liberate economic condition in Africa's growth. Let's do this again next week. It is an absolute pleasure. This is Nimrok Tembele signing off. Um, have a good one. Beyond governance was brought to you by Plus 94 Research, the science of decision making.